good to see so many of you uh, waking up from your post-Thanksgiving hibernation. Uh, I almost thought we should start this morning with some stretches just to remind ourselves that we have muscles that aren't used for digestion. Um, we can do some of that, uh, but it's good to see you guys. And, um, as, Ford, as Ford said, we are starting a new series uh, this week on Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'd recommend turning there to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses today. Um, this may be a very familiar passage for many of us, as Luke gives us the most famous and detailed account of Jesus' birth. Everything from the Tivity plays to a Charlie Brown Christmas has enshrined this story in our hearts and in our minds. But today, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at this famous narrative from the perspective of Advent, the season of a church calendar that we find ourselves in this morning. And here at Redeemer, we make mention of liturgical seasons like Advent or Epiphany or Lent regularly throughout the year. We see these seasons as signposts pointing us throughout the year to who God is and what God has done. And so over these next four weeks, as we explore the two, the questions we're asking ourselves is, who is this God who has acted in this way? And what might the first coming of Jesus tell us about his second coming? Because while in our culture, Advent is often swallowed up by Christmas, the intention behind Advent is to draw our gaze to Christ's second coming. Advent is all about waiting and anticipation and longing and preparation. These are the themes of Advent. It's a season intentionally placed at the beginning of the church calendar to jumpstart our devotion by focusing our gaze on what is to come, on the reality of Christ's second coming. In this way, the church calendar actually begins at the end. It acts as a reminder and as a warning against complacency. But more than that, Advent allows us to go through the rest of the church year with the last page of history in our back pocket. We know how this story is going to end. We know that good will ultimately triumph. And so we wait. And if you're like me, you aren't good waiting. This year has, at least for me, felt like an exercise in waiting and my antsiness as we've been sitting through lockdowns and quarantines and working from home has just proven to me again and again that I am not good at waiting. And I think this applies spiritually as well. We aren't good at sitting in the tension of what theologians call the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. But that is right where Advent places us, between the two poles of Christ's coming. Looking backwards, as we are this morning, we see all that Jesus has already done for us. We see an act of God coming down to earth to be with his people, to redeem a sinful world. Looking forward, we see God finally fulfilling his promises to return, to never leave us and forsake us, to set the world right in judgment, and to make his dwelling place with his people. The prophetic longing of Micah 5 that we read this morning looks forward to both of these events, to Jesus born in Bethlehem 
and to Jesus, the victorious king, returning to Jerusalem. Until that time, we stand in the middle. And Advent says, watch, wait, be attentive to all that God is doing. So I would encourage you this Advent to spend some time sitting in that tension, to truly experience waiting and watching. One of the things I love about paying attention to the church calendar in general is that it helps us to focus on different aspects of the story of God. It gives us opportunities to be solemn, to celebrate, to mourn, and to rejoice. It helps us tell time by telling us who God is throughout the year and where we are in his purposes. And so it's important as we start this new cycle of the church calendar to remember how we measure time matters. Time creates a scaffolding for us that our life is structured by. Just think about how much your life changes when daylight savings time rolls around each year or the difference between a summer week versus a week when the kids are in school. Or just think about how you wake up Monday morning versus Friday morning. Time is not neutral. And how we measure it tells us something about what we are worshiping. Theologian David O. Taylor says it this way. If the church doesn't tell us what time it is, the surrounding culture surely will. And we will usually end up all the worse for it. And I think in our passage today, we can see this tension of what time it is. Anyone who has a child knows better than I do what those nine months of waiting are like. And when Luke picks up the story, Mary and Joseph are in the midst of that waiting. But their waiting carried even more significance than most fathers and mothers. At this point, Mary had been visited by an angel, explaining the miracle of the baby that was now growing in her belly. Joseph, after getting understandably cold feet, also was visited by an angel to explain, this baby is the work of the Holy Spirit. This child is the long-awaited Messiah. Can you imagine the anticipation? Can you imagine the anxiety and the confusion? No pressure, Mary and Joseph, but this child shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, and he is going to set his people free. Can you imagine the loneliness they must have felt? Who would have believed them outside of each other? Their only respite, their only true foundation underneath all of this will sound very familiar to us. Faith and hope. Faith and hope are the balms for those who are waiting. Faith and hope engage our minds and our hearts and place them on things above, transcendent things that exist outside of our current circumstances. All Mary and Joseph could do was trust the word of God that they received. All you and I can do in our season of Advent, in our season of waiting, is trust in the word of God that we have received. This trust, this faith and hope should not be confused with complacency. There's a watchfulness that comes over the faithful heart. As people living between the two poles of God's action, we know we love and serve an active God. One who, even before his second coming, will continue to show up, continue to make himself known, even in the mundane and ordinary. In the midst of the waiting, we get glimpses. Moments of clarity that break through and remind us as we wait, 
remind us that we wait for a God who is already at work. But if we're not careful, we might miss these moments. Life has a way of filling our days up with things that do not matter, shifting our focus away from faith and hope and placing it on our own achievements, our daily tasks, our wealth, and our health. These things may seem important at the time. They fill us with a sense of pride and accomplishment. But Luke here issues a warning for those who prefer a sense of importance to the more vulnerable experience of faith and hope. He begins this passage with a wide-angle lens, zooming out to the great and powerful empire that Jesus was born into. Around this time, a census was being conducted. Citizens were to be counted for tax purposes. Caesar wanted to know just how big his empire was, how far his influence stretched, how truly powerful he really was. But this is not what is important to Luke, and this is not where God's power resided. As people who are waiting and watching for God, it strikes me that Jesus didn't show up with the powerful and the influential. He wasn't born to a high-ranking official, a member of Caesar's household, or even Herod's. Doing so would have gone along with the cultural emphasis on pedigree at the time, the importance of your family and where you come from. But that is not what was foretold. And that is not how the power of God has been revealed throughout Scripture. If we are to be people who watch and wait for God, we should learn quickly this lesson. It is ancient Abraham and barren Sarah who bore Isaac by the power of God. It is an enslaved nation of Israel, small and powerless, who God emancipates and frees. It is the final son of Jesse out with the sheep who God declares king. And it is a virgin woman, humble and living in an out-of-the-way town that God declares blessed. Our constant desire for worldly power to be where the action is, to have control and to be influential might be an idol that pulls us away from where God is truly at work. Just before this chapter, Luke records Mary's incredible reflection highlighting God's presence with the humble. She says, he has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. In this moment of history, the power of God, the power that would cast down the mighty from their thrones, did not come from the long arm of the government, but appeared in the womb of a woman, in a town that few considered relevant, too small to be considered one of the clans of Judah. Luke makes this contrast clear. On the one hand, you have Caesar issuing decrees, and on the other, you have Jesus, the true son of God, lying. He's lying in a manger because, as Luke says, there was no room for him in the inn. As many of you know, um, inn is an unfortunate translation here. It was most likely the guest room of a family house that was too full to accommodate Mary's new arrival. It's possible that the house was too full because of the census. As Luke highlights, everyone was on their way, each to their city. So to find space to lay their newborn baby down, they would have to go to a different part of the house where the animals were kept, or possibly out to a cave. This is not a setting for children, especially a newborn baby, but it is where Jesus opened his eyes for the first time. 
Christ's first coming began in humility. God embraced not just the human condition, but the humblest of human conditions. He came with no trappings of privilege. And it is this humility that God celebrates. This is only the beginning of the Gospel of Luke's emphasis on this upside-down kingdom. God raising up the poor and downtrodden and often critiquing the powerful and influential. We see this emphasis begin immediately after Jesus' birth because God is not ashamed of where Jesus lies. This was intentional all along. It isn't Caesar in the end who pushes Mary and Joseph to make accommodations in a feeding trough. This is God's hand at work. The humility of the manger becomes a sign proclaimed by angels. It is this humility that becomes God's decree, not seeking citizens for a census, but disciples for a kingdom. It is true that the final act of God, the second coming of Jesus, will not be like the first. He will not come in humility then, but as the rightful king. But how we view that future day is completely dependent on what we do with the baby in the manger. Until we see Jesus on that day, the resurrected Lord of life, are we comfortable seeing him as a humble baby? As we watch and as we wait for God's return, do we shirk away from the ordinary ways God acts in our life now? Or are we watchful and attentive to what God might be up to, recognizing it isn't worldly power that matters, but power that comes from the Spirit? Power that is at home in a manger in a crowded room with shepherds singing praises and a mother pondering everything in her heart. What could Christ's humility possibly mean for us today in Advent? First and foremost, I think it tells us that the one who comes in judgment, the risen and victorious Lord, is acquainted with suffering. His life began in these dirty and non-ideal circumstances. He takes no pride in our pride, but understands us at our most basic and vulnerable state. Second, the one who comes in judgment has a heart for those poor and oppressed. And if we want to be those who watch and wait for God, we should be in tune with this heart for the poor. We should shake off the idol of importance and fame and propel ourselves to those forgotten places and forgotten people. There we might find God at work, though the world is passing him by. Waiting can be uncomfortable. It can also be a fearful thing be wrong to go through Advent and not mention fear. When described in scripture, the second coming is often filled with descriptions that can fill us with fear. The sky being opened up, time and the world as we know it changing dramatically, the prospect of judgment for us and our loved ones. I think it's natural to be frightened by this. But what returns me to faith and hope is remembering who will be the one in charge Our God was born in a manger. Our God lived a life for those forgotten. Our God experienced hunger, thirst, loss, rejection. From the very beginning, it can be said that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. And ultimately, our God experienced a shameful and excruciating death. The one who comes in judgment knows suffering. The one who comes in judgment, as Paul says, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient, but by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
death on a cross. This is the one who God highly exalts and gives the name above every name. This is the one to whom every knee shall ultimately bow. This is the one God raised on the third day in victory. And this is the one that we wait for. So this Advent, let's fall back on faith and hope as we watch and wait for God. Remember who it is we are waiting for and recognize that even as we wait, God can still be found today in the mundane and the ordinary and the humble.